Punching, sparring, fight game, fisticuffs, the sweet science, pugilism, combat, prize fighting, a slugfest, boxing. Am I missing any? I think I got them all. I got them all, right? Right? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Theater of the Golden Silence podcast. Your tickets have been taken, and the theater is filling up with rabid sports fans eager to see a love triangle resolve itself. And there may or may not be a spat of fisticuffs, so hurry, hurry, and find yourself a seat. The opening bell's about to ring. But before we roll on this movie magic, I just want to remind you to follow the Golden Silence cast on Instagram for the most up-to-date information on this little podcast. And for all you tweeters on the Twitter, the Golden Silence podcast now exists there. Just search for the Golden Silence cast or tweet us at Golden Silence One. And it is these cyber spots where we let you know what films are coming up and how best to watch them. You'll also find fun historical pictures and show facts and news. Then we reconvene here for a bit of infotainment amongst friends. The marquee of the theater is showing that today's feature is The Ring. Not the Japanese ring. There will be no demon ladies in wells. So relax. It's it's a boxing, a nice relaxing boxing picture. And this film is one of Alfred Hitchcock's early silent films. Nowadays, Hitchcock is synonymous with thrills and chills. But in 1927, Hitchcock was just getting started building a name for himself. Like I've said in early episodes, watching and learning about these movies was going to be a journey for me. And us. So far, we haven't gone on too long of a journey, though. Every movie we have discussed here has been an American production. With The Ring, this will be the first film to take us out of the States. For today's today's showing, we will be making our first trip to Europe and covering the first British film in the long storied history and career of the Golden Silence podcast. But before our cinematic travel reaches Great Britain, let's see what's going on in 1927. Not wasting time and still geographically relevant, on January 1st, the British Broadcasting Company becomes the British Broadcasting Corporation when its Royal Charter of Incorporation takes effect. John Reith becomes the first Director General. On March 11th, the first armored car robbery is committed by the Flatheads Gang, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. On April 7th, Bell Telephone Company transmits an image of Herbert Hoover, then the Secretary of Commerce, which becomes the first successful long-distance demonstration of television. On April 14th, the first Volvo automobile rolls off the production line in Gothenburg, Sweden. And on August 23rd, Sacco and Vanzetti are executed in Charlestown State Prison in Boston, Massachusetts. In addition to notable and historic world events, 1927 was home to more notable births than you can punch a stick at. Did that work? I'm not sure. I don't know if that made any sense. But 
While I figure out a better way to say that, let's see who all was born in the heaven that was 27. On February 20th, 1927, Sidney Pontier, this actor, film director, and ambassador was born in Miami, Florida. This actor was the first black male and first Afro-Bahamian to win an Oscar. In addition to his many awards, he was made an honorary knight commander of the Order of the British Empire. July 6th, while we are on a Hitchcock kick here, it would be remiss not to mention Janet Lee, who played Marion Crane in Psycho. She also had roles in classic films such as Touch of Evil and The Manchurian Candidate. And on September 16th, Peter Falk, an actor best known for his role as Lieutenant Columbo on the long-running series Columbo. In that role, he won four Primetime Emmy Awards and one Golden Globe Award, and my heart as a television detective fan. He is my all-time favorite, but that's beside the point. On the other end of the spectrum, though, there is death this year that has connection to someone we have discussed in past episodes, and that would be June Mathis. Mathis was an accomplished screenwriter and, at one point, the highest-paid executive in Hollywood. She was also a friend and collaborator with Rudolph Valentino. Mathis passed away on July 26, 1927. In the ring, one-round Jack Sander battles the Australian heavyweight champ to win back his true love. I'd fight a heavyweight champ to win back. The movie description. The Ring is a 1927 silent romance film directed by Alfred Hitchcock, produced by John Maxwell. It was written by Alfred Hitchcock, though Elliot Stannard contributed in an uncredited role. This film stars Carl Brisson, Lillian Hall Davis, and Ian Hunter. With cinematography by Jack E. Cox, production company British International Pictures, and a release date of August 1st, 1927 in the United Kingdom. Now, the version of the film that I'm watching uh, is a special Blu-ray edition. Now, The Ring is a bit trickier to find than some of the other films we've covered here. A lot of them are on the YouTube or on DVD, but this one's a little bit trickier to find. Well, to find for free, at least. There is a version on the YouTube, but it appears to be about 20-ish minutes shorter. I did not watch this version, so I can't say how the quality is or what parts were cut out. This film exists on quite a few DVD and Blu-ray collections, though. The version I watched came from the Hitchcock British International Pictures collection. This collection, as the Blu-ray case says, brings together five features... Hitchcock directed for the production company that first displayed his talents. This collection contains four silence and one talkie he filmed from 27 to 31. If you're going to jump into Silent Hitchcock, this is the best version to get, by far. The picture quality is fantastic, and Kino Lorber, the company that put this set out, is one of the best when it comes to film preservation. And The Ring has a new score composed by Meg Morley, which was fantastic. 
Included with the special features is an icon interviewing an icon special feature, which is a conversation between Hitchcock and French film director Francois Truffaut. This collection also comes with an audio commentary track by film critic Nick Pinkerton. What a great collection this is for those who want to dig a bit deeper into the career of Alfred Hitchcock. After the movie discussion, I'll go a bit more in-depth into the special features. With that theatrical housekeeping out of the way, let's learn some more about the folks that brought The Ring to life. Well, when talking about a Hitchcock film, one does not simply start the biography segment with someone not named Alfred Hitchcock. So, let's learn some fun things about the master of suspense himself. Alfred Hitchcock was born on August 13, 1899, in Lightonstone, Essex, England. He was the youngest of three children. Hitchcock was raised as a Catholic and attended St. Ignatius College, which is a school run by Jesuits. His first job outside of the family business was in 1915 when he worked for Henley Telegraph and Cable Company. It was at this time that a serious interest in film began developing for him. Mental Floss, the website Mental Floss, elaborates on some of his early film work in silence, which is why we're here, right? Sean Hutchinson writes, Known for the complex title sequences in his own films, Hitchcock began his career in cinema in the early 1920s, designing the art title cards featured in silent films. The gig was at an American company based in London called the famous Players Lasky Company. It would later become Paramount Pictures, which produced five Hitchcock-directed films. As Hitchcock later told French filmmaker Francois Truffaut, in their infamous Hitchcock-Truffaut conversations, it was while I was in this department, you see, that I got acquainted with the writers and was able to study the scripts. And out of that, I learned the writing of scripts. The experience also led Hitch to try his hand at actual filmmaking. If an extra scene was wanted, I used to be sent out to shoot it, he told Truffaut. The Harvard Film Archive at harvardfilmarchive.org had a great note on his influences with regards to his silent oeuvre. I believe that's how you say it. Don't quote me on that. Among Hitchcock's formative influences were Russian and German silent cinema. So enamored was Hitchcock with the work of German directors, and F.W. Murnau in particular, that he traveled to Germany to study the work being done at UFA Studios, and at the time of the world's most advanced production... at let me start that over. So study the work at UFA Studios, which at the time was one of the world's most advanced production companies. It was in Germany that Hitchcock would, in fact, direct his first two films, The Pleasure Garden and his now lost The Mountain Eagle. But it was, this, but it was his third film, the mysterious and moody The Lodger, that the influence of German expressionism is most legible. In an article about the Hitchcock Nine, the silent films of Alfred Hitchcock, author Justin McKinney breaks down Hitchcock's late 20s. Billed as the world's youngest director at just 25, and a mere five years after entering the film industry, he was quickly signed to a 10,000-pound contract. In 1926, Hitchcock married Alma Revel, who would become his close collaborator, and in 1928, they had a daughter, Patricia. 
Hitchcock completed a total of 10 films by the close of the decade, and by 1929, with the advent of sound, he had become the leading director in Britain, demonstrating the tremendous skill and precision that later set him apart in Hollywood. Hitchcock's greatest critical and commercial success came during this time in Hollywood. The director would eventually direct over 50 feature films in a career that lasted six decades. His films would collect 46 Academy Award nominations, including six wins, although he never did win Best Director despite being nominated five times. He would become a Knight Commander of the Order of the British Empire, knighted by Queen Elizabeth II in 1980. Now, rewinding a bit back to 1960, Hitchcock was inducted into the Hollywood Walk of Fame on February 8, 1960. As a bit of a twist, the director received two stars, one for film and one for television. Just for, Now, fast forward again back to 1980. Just four months after his knighthood in 1980, to be more specific, April 29th, Hitchcock passed away in his Bel Air home. He died of kidney failure at the age of 80. Now let's talk about the star of this film, Carl Brisson, a.k.a. One Round Jack Sander. Carl Friedrich Einar Pedersen was born on December 24, 1893, in Copenhagen, Denmark. Brisson was a prize fighter for a bit before attracting attention as an actor. In August of 1924, Brisson toured in a production of Katia the Dancer, where he played Carl, eventually returning to London to appear in the Apache at the London Palladium, and would make his screen debut in The Ring in 1927. That would not be his last team up with Hitchcock. He would later star with Hitchcock in Hitchcock's The Manxman in 1929. He'd go on to appear in 12 films from 1918 to 1935. He would also make a living as a singer after his acting days were over. Brisson was married to Cleo Willard Brisson in 1915. They would remain married right up until his death in sept- on September 25, 1958. He died of jaundice. Let's talk about Lillian Hall Davis, who played Mabel in The Ring. Lillian Hall Davis was born on June 23, 1898. She was born in London, England. For someone only acting for about 14 years, she had a pretty full filmography. Her films included a version of Pagliacci in 1923 and The Passionate Adventure in 1924. In 1927 and 28, she would do two Hitchcock films, the first being The Ring in 1927, and then The Farmer's Wife in 1928. At the time, Hitchcock considered her his favorite actress. Throughout her filmography, she featured in major roles in English, German, French, and Italian productions. For such a great career, her life came to an incredibly dismal and tragic end. She would take her own life on October 25, 1933, in a terribly grisly manner. With a career decline and health issues, she turned her gas oven on, stuck her head in, and slit her own throat. To add even more tragedy, she was discovered by her son. She was only 35 years old. Now we'll move on to Ian Hunter, who played Bob Corby. Hunter was born in the Kenilworth area of Cape Town, South South Africa in 1900, where he spent his childhood. In his teen years, he and his parents returned to the family 
origins in England to live. Sometime between that arrival and the early years of World War I, Hunter began exploring acting, but in 1917, and being only 17, he joined the army to serve in France for the year of the war still remaining. Within two years, he did indeed make his stage acting debut. Hunter would never forget that the stage was the thing when the lure of movie making called. He would always return throughout his career. Under normal circumstances, I would break down a bit of old Ian's filmography, but these are not normal circumstances, and Ian Hunter doesn't have a normal filmography. There are so many movies, so many movies, and that's not even taking into account his stage credits. His first film was 1924, and his final role was in 1963. He was married to Catherine... Pringle in 1917, and they remained married until his death in 1975. They had two children. Ian Hunter died on September 22, 1975 in London, England. With all of that said, and the players in their corners, let's punch our way into 1927 and the film The Ring. Wait, 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 wait. I, I'm a liar. Oops on that one my good listener friends out there before that let's do this real quick as a part of the pre-fight press conference i thought i would give a bit of insight as to why i chose the ring for this episode of the podcast there are a few reasons why i chose this flick the first was the lure of international waters of silent cinema i mean as i mentioned before all the films i have talked about had a decidedly American slant. I knew going into making this show, the worldwide silent film community had a lot to offer, and now it seemed like the right time to expand a little past my borders. The second reason was Alfred Hitchcock. I've always enjoyed Hitchcock films, but was completely unaware that he got his start in the silence. How cool is it to be able to go back and see the early works of a legend? And the last reason is the sweet science itself. Now, I, by no stretch of anyone's imagination, am a professional boxer. Far this thing from it. But I have fond memories of it in combat sports films that I have been lucky enough to be a part of. And it is through these experiences that I was drawn to the ring. It was 2010, 2011-ish, and I was an extra on a big MMA movie filmed here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was called Warrior, and it starred Tom Hardy, Joel Edgerton, even Nick Nolte. I was lucky enough to get to chat with Tom Hardy, super cool dude. I got to meet UFC fighters, uh, Anthony Rumble Johnson, if you've ever heard of him. I got to see Nate the Great Marquardt fight. It was a great experience for me to get to see how these fights were filmed. And the fights in this movie were some of the most realistic, legit film fights I had ever seen. And I was actually able to talk a bit to the fight coordinator. And one thing he talked so much about was how committed he was to the realism of the fight. How committed he didn't want it to look like a ridiculous movie fight. And I think that commitment to realism showed in the final product. Another film project I worked on 
was actually a boxing short film. It starred my good friend James Quinn, and it was called Sandman. It was a cool little flick that told the story of a down-and-out fighter who needs to make the most out of his last shot at the big time. There are a couple extra twists and turns, but I will not spoil those here. It was a great boxing story filmed with real boxers in a real boxing gym. If you are interested in checking out Sandman, the Sandman trailer, it's available on YouTube, and I will definitely put a link to it in the trailer of the Golden Silence Instagram and the Twitter page. And if you want to see it for yourself or follow the, the progress of the movie, you can follow Sandman the Movie on Instagram or just search Sandman Boxing Film on Facebook and give it a give it a look. And I can't talk about boxing without talking about the coolest boxer I know. That would be one Puerto Rican prince, Jose Caraballo, and the great boxing training I got at the Ray Schaefer Boxing Association. Now, it was a great gym run by a great trainer. This gym is the best old-school, legit-ass-looking gym you could ask for, and definitely played a part in increasing my love of boxing and experiencing the sweet science firsthand. And I am a 100% sure that Jose could take out an Australian heavyweight champion. You got this one, Jose. Now, with all that said, and the players in their corners, let us punch our way into 1927 and the film The Ring. British International Pictures Limited presents The Ring, copyright 1927, written and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. This would be Hitchcock's fifth feature by release date and one of nine surviving Hitchcock Silence. This was also Hitchcock's first film for British International Pictures. Now all the, overlaid, all the opening credits are overlaid on a picture of a boxing ring with two boxers engaged in a bit of fisticuffs. The official opening of the film starts us off with a montage, a montage of fun and games at a carnival. The banging of a big drum, a group of people in a whirly gig-ish machine, not sure the official title of the thing, but the contraption where people are sitting and swing things, spinning around. You know the thing. Next is a really cool shot of scenes of swing thing, more swing things, and the angles really make it look rad. This cued me in on seeing cool visuals right off the bat. For an early Hitchcock experience, you can see just in this itty bitty montage that he definitely has an eye for this business. Next in the old montage is a barking carny advertising the exploits of one fatty fanny. Like any good carnival, it has its freak shows and whatnot. And fatty fanny certainly is one of them. This might be a historical moment. I might be the first person to find the composition of a Hitchcock shot annoying. I know I just got done praising his visual prowess, but in this shot, the Carney Barker's podium cuts the fanny, the fatty fanny ad off before the last word. It says, fatty fanny, what a lumpa. And then this is where it cuts off. We may never know what fatty fanny was a lump of. Oh well. The montage continues with more scenes from a day at the carnival. 
close-ups of Barker's mouths, people shooting in target games, trying their hand at hammer, bell tests of strength, and throwing balls at a target to knock a guy into a dunk tank. This is one of a few bits of the movie that don't play so well to a modern audience, and I hope they didn't play very well to a contemporary audience, but now the guy getting dunked is a black guy, and two kids sneak to the front and start pelting them with eggs as a crowd of white folk and a cop, instead of getting rid of them, just laughs laughs it off. The youths are eventually shoot away, and the black fellow was definitely played to be a doofus. While it was a quick little piece in a larger montage, it still is uh, really, really yucky. With that, mont- with that, the montage has come to a close, and we see two men in a crowd. One is way taller and bigger than anyone in the crowd, and the dude next to him is smaller and smoking. The big guy sees a cute lady ticket taker at the next attraction. He is smitten at first sight. This attraction is a fighting attraction. The Barker is seeing if anyone wants a shot in the ring. Forrester Harvey plays James Ware in this scene. Manager. And Ian Hunter, this is where Ian Hunter comes in as Bob Corby. But we don't know why they're there yet. We just see them. Here we are introduced to the cute ticket taker. In the movie, she's just called the girl. But she actually plays Mabel. And she is, like I said earlier, played by Lillian Hall Davis. She looks out into the crowd and makes eye contact with the smitten big guy. The Barker continues to make his pitch. Who out there is tough enough to get in the ring? A dapper fellow in the crowd is being cajoled into stepping right up. As this back and forth continues, a man comes out of the tent to chat with the girl. They talk playfully, and she feeds him a piece of gum. The man in the crowd is finally convinced to take his shot in the ring in the tent. The crowd starts buying their tickets to watch the fight. The Barker, or showman as he is credited, is played by Harry Terry. This is Terry's film debut. This is where the groundwork is being laid for the seemingly ever-present love triangle. This seems to be a go-to scenario in silent films we've looked at so far. Of the four we've discussed, three contain at least a love triangle. Alice in Wonderland seems to be the only lust-free film so far. This is where we meet our lead of the film. He was playing the gum-chewing and lovingly looking at our lovely ticket-taker. We learn his name is One Round Jack Sander, played by Carl Brisson. I'm starting to learn that this is the official way characters, actors, are introduced into silent films. I liked it when I first saw this method in Battle of the Sexes and still am digging it here. I'm all about this style of introduction where you have a description of the person, the name of the character, and who's playing them. Jack makes his way to the front stage. This is where we find out this how this attraction works. Jack is called One Round Jack for a reason. Any man in the crowd that can last with Jack wins. Some blowhard, faux, tough guy will say yes. Get their ass beat. And the carnival makes money selling tickets to people who want to see a whooping. We also start to meet the cast of characters who are Jack's carny, 
slash entourage slash cornerman, etc. A lot of these folks will comprise the bulk of the comic relief, especially the, the one cornerman. The main trainer, that cornerman I was just talking about, is played by Gordon Harker, who is a freaking hilarious in this film. One man's wife in the crowd tries hard, tries her best to convince her wimpy hubby to take a shot. While the Barker is trying to get some cannon fodder in the tent for some punching for a little slugfest against one round Jack, Jack's sweetheart at the ticket booth is making eyes with the big guy in the crowd, trying to convince him to take a shot. He nods no. In lieu of going into a boxing ring, he heads to the girl for a bit more flirting. I should mention here that she is, at this point, just the girl. But we'll find out later that she's Mabel. And that meowing you hear is one of the two theater cats in the Golden Silence Theater. That was Soda Pop. But he seems to be having left now, so let's get back to the movie description. The guy asks if Jack is a friend of hers. She looks at Jack and says he is a very great friend. While they talk, a huge, rough and rowdy looking sailor is in the crowd, feeling pretty darn good about his chances in the fight with Jack. Jack seems secure in his abilities until he looks towards the girl and the guy talking all flirtatious-like. He looks a bit forlorn for a moment before convincing himself everything is okay. To make himself feel a bit more at ease, he jokingly challenges the man to get in the ring with him. Jack invites the crowd in on the challenge. Perhaps some peer pressure is what it takes to get a guy into a fight. The girl says, Mabel, says he doesn't think he can stay around, Jack. Despite that, the guy buys a ticket to throw down with some aw shucks style. The sailor also gets in on the action. With contenders ready, the assembled crowd starts madly buying tickets to see one round Jack go to work. Mabel opens up a flap in the tent to watch the action unfold. A match is just finishing up as she sees Jack take it to the ring to watch him fight everyone's least favorite belligerent sailor man. The flirty big guy is in the front row watching as well. One of Jack's trainers holds the coat of the sailor. As I mentioned earlier, the trainer is played by Gordon Harker. This is the corner man I had mentioned earlier who I thought was hilarious. His facial expressions alone make his performance so, so good. While much of this movie is played for drama and seriousness, these moments of comedy play super well. Since his character is only listed as Jack's trainer, I'll go by that as well. So if you're keeping score at home, we have one round Jack, Mabel and Jack's trainers, Jack's trainer on one side, and Bob Corby and his manager on the other. This fight is a quick one with the sailor. The sailor walks off screen, is off screen for a couple seconds before falling back into frame, whooped. Jack's trainer takes his gloves off, puts his jacket back on before ushering him out of the ring and back to his seat. The next man to fight here was the the guy that fought at the urging of his wife. He looks at Jack and his cornerman and is scared stupid. He trips his way into the ring, knocking himself out before a punch is ever thrown. 
One of the cornermen says, Next gent, please. In the early portion of this flick, there are quite a few angry wives pushing their wussy husbands to fight. I don't know if that means something or there's some hidden meaning there, but a lot of wussy husbands that don't want to fight professional fighters. The big flirty dude from earlier steps into the ring. He is confident as can be. He's in a nice suit and looking super dapper. Mabel looks on intently through the cigarette smoke-filled tent. He takes his coat off, preparing to throw down. You can tell he is a classy, cultured fellow by how nicely he folds his coat up and removes his hat. Jack's trainer hands him boxing gloves. As he prepares, Jack overconfidently lounges back in the opposing corner. Round one, fight. Jack's trainer prepares to return the jacket after his quick KO. He turns toward the fight to see a legit fight happening. Jack is struggling against this dude. Jack's trainer looks on in disbelief. The stranger is holding his own. The stranger and Mabel make eye contact. He smiles and starts pounding on Jack. She can't believe what she has seen either. She yells to the barker and the crowd that Jack is getting bested. They all run in to see the unthinkable. Now, Hitchcock talks about a small, subtle detail in this scene. The marker for round one is dirty and beat to hell. When the guy goes to round two, the sign is in mint condition on account of never having been used before. Now, that's a cool little visual thing that I didn't pick up the first time I saw it. But it's something that once you, once you see the meticulous attention to detail... It's, it's just a really cool, subtle thing, but it really means a lot. Now, we're in round two of the fight. The Barker sees an opportunity to sell more tickets, like any good carny would. One round, Jack's not, one round Jack has met his man at last. Roll up and see the fight of your lives, he yells. The crowd buys tickets like crazy. We are now squarely into round four. The crowd watches on the edge of their seats. One round Jack falls, taken down by the powerful punches of the stranger. He is down for the count, and the stranger's hand is lifted in victory. Jack's shocked trainer removes the, train, removes the stranger's gloves and runs to attend to Jack. The barker hands over the prize money. Jack is in disbelief and shock. The stranger looks over at the disappointed Mabel. By now, he is outside talking to the girl some more. His compatriot follows him out. Now, the filming of this, the finish of this fight, was done in a way to maximize the surprise. The camera is behind a good handful of people, all standing and cheering. You can see almost zero of the ring. You can make out that someone went down, and that the official was counted ten, but you don't know who won right away until it peels back and you see that Bob Corby is left standing. He says to Mabel, We heard he was good, now we know. The girl replies that she and Jack were to be married, and now this loss may have cost him his job. The manager hands her a business card. He is James Ware, manager to Bob Corby. 
the heavyweight champion of Australia. Now, as we find out that Jack is beaten by the Aussie heavyweight champ Bob Corby, we find out that Bob Corby is played by Ian Hunter. The two men take leave of Mabel and disappear off into the carnival crowd. It's night now, and the carny folk are tearing things down and cleaning up for the night. Jack and Mabel share a moment. She cleans him up and washes his face after a long, hard day of face punching. They're both shocked to see Bob Corby and his manager show up. At this point, he doesn't know who they are. She pulls out the business card out of her dress. She reads from the card and introduces the two men to Jack. When she says Bob's name, a lack of, I don't know, not love, but some sort of infatuation comes across her. Jack and James Ware head outside to talk business. While battling Bob Corby, stays inside to make the flirty time with Mabel. Jack's cornermen watch on as the boxer and the babe talk and laugh, laugh and talk. They see the looks and decide to head outside away from nose away from the nosy Nancy's. The two of them take a moonlit carny walk as Jack continues to talk business. Bob gives Mabel a gift from the money he won. Well, this gift is an arm bracelet. Not sure what it's called in official jewelry parlance, but it's the bracelet that goes over a gal's uh, like bicep area. So I guess it's like an arm bracelet or something, or a bangle of some sort. But anyway, this bangle is in the form of a snake. So that's some more of that symbolism that that Hitchcock was so great at. At this point. We see here what is being discussed on the business side of the ledger. We learn that one round Jack Sander is getting a trial fight. The two men were so impressed by his skills earlier, but require of him one more test. If he emerges victorious, he will become Big Shot Bob Corby's sparring partner. Jack wastes no time in saying it's a deal. As they shake on the deal, Corby is putting the jewelry on Mabel's arm, the bangle. Then they kiss. First, she tries to fight it, but gives in to the impromptu make-out session. After the kiss ends, she doesn't know whether to feel wrong or right in the moment. Bob sees that Jack and his manager are looking for them. They straighten themselves up and head back. Mabel covers her arm bracelet with her hand. Jack relates the news of the deal, the boxer and the businessman take off. Now Mabel, she's awfully brazen in this this scene. She doesn't even take off the thing. She just sort of hides it. And not even like a good hiding, like kind of lazy at that. So don't know what that, don't know if she's story-wise or if it's just she kind of wants to flaunt it. I don't know. So Mabel runs into the fortune teller's wagon. The fortune teller lays out playing cards to begin the reading. Now, let's rewind here a bit. I forgot to mention this bit of info earlier. So when Mabel and Corby took their stroll, they went behind the fortune teller's wagon. What the potential lovebirds didn't know was that the old fortune teller lady was watching them. So now, let's jump back to the current scene. So the fortune teller gets her gimmicks out from her box of gimmicks. And says Mabel, which is 
deck of cards. She lays the cards out in a magical, fortune-telling way and says that Mabel will fall in love with a tall, rich man. A curious Jack interrupts the reading, blissfully ignorant of the soap opera only just beginning. The fortune teller sees the covered-up jewelry, but Jack sees nothing but positivity in the cards, saying how they're a sign of his impending fame and fortune. It's, I think, possibly the next day, but Jack is pawn-side shaving. I must say, I found this an impressive feat. Forget going toe-to-toe with a heavyweight champ. Shaving pawn-side might beat it. Shaving in great conditions is a pain, and this handsome devil is making rustic grooming look awfully easy. So, I salute you one round, Jack. So as Jack is finishing cleaning his face after the shave, when Mabel joins him, we see their reflections in the pond as she kneels down beside him. She gives him a kiss, only for her arm bracelet to fall into the drink. This was a cool shot that I really dug. It probably wasn't too crazy technique-wise, but it worked so perfectly and showed a lot of their relationship and futures in the ripples of the water. So with the bracelet or bangle in the in the pond, Jack reaches in to get to get it, what fell in. He didn't know what it was and looks puzzled as he holds it in his hands. She takes it from him and explains how she came to possess it. He bought the Bob Corby bought the bangle because he didn't like taking the money he won, she says, and she expertly continues so it was really you who gave it to me. That is some good psychological gymnastics there. Bravo, Mabel. At first, Jack seems to take it at face value, but his true feelings come through in his face. He knows something is off, but doesn't want to acknowledge it. Instead, he uses the moment to profess his true love for her. He takes the bangle and puts it over her finger. Then... I give it to you for this. With that, they get to kissing. If I win the trial fight, we'll get married the day after, he exclaims. She nods yes before returning the bangle to her arm. It is now the day of Jack's big fight to prove himself in the ring, to prove he is worthy of being a sparring partner to the Australian world champ. But... With all that excitement, Mabel is still working the ticket booth at the carnival. She's clearly distracted and unfocused in her handing out of tickets. Jack's trainer comes out to ask if she has heard anything in the way of results from Jack's fight. She says he said he'd send a wire when it was over. We get a cool montage of Jack boxing overlaid on top of her concerned face. She snaps out of it to see a post office telegraph delivery guy. She waves him over. He hands her a telegraph. She rips it open. It says this. Have one. Shall see you at church tomorrow morning as arranged. Jack. So that tells us we learn that he has won his fight. And they are going to get married. So we fast forward a day. It's tomorrow morning. An empty carnival. No one is there. They have better things to do. They have nuptials. To celebrate, everyone is at the church. We see many of the fine carny folk. There are conjoined sisters fighting over where to sit. They are followed by a small fellow and a super tall fellow. Basically, 
a, carny, a carnival's greatest hits of people. The Barker walks Mabel down the aisle, while Jack's trainer walks with Jack down the aisle. This scene is a great example of the understated humor of this film. There are a few cool chuckle-slash-giggle-worthy moments in the interactions of the carny folk, but nothing outlandish or over-the-top. Also, seeing the priest's reactions to these characters is really fun and continues the understated nature of these comedic moments. The actual ceremony begins. The bride and groom are standing as Corby and his manager sneak in the ceremony. Another cool thing about this scene is the use of intertitles. It's pretty ingenious, actually. So, we see their hands, I believe, if my memory serves, and in a fancy, churchy font, the vow, do you take this man, dot, 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 uh, is it laid over top of that picture of their hands. Just a cool, innovative use of intertitles. Just overall, I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff and such a big fan of, of this scene. The humor, the use of intertitles, and the acting. And don't let, don't forget about the acting. The, you can't discount it. Everyone behind the camera, in front of the camera, just killed it in this scene. I mean, all silent films were working within the same constraints. So it's cool to see Hitchcock here and other directors do these small things that really set their films apart. So, back in the wedding world, Mabel is looking awfully unsure when asked to take this man till death do us part. Champ Corby isn't as impressed by this as much. He is yawning and generally unimpressed. After some nose-picking tomfoolery by Jack's trainer as the best man, he gets to get in the ring. The congregation is laughing as he drops the ring. While picking it up, a button of his pops off and he mistakenly grabs it and hands it to the fine old padre. Oops. Seeing the mistake, he switches it out for the actual ring. Jack puts the ring on, but we see, Cor but we see Corby's bangles on Mabel's arm as well. It's a touch scandalous if you ask me. So... We next bounce out to the outside. There's a big feast outside in honor of the newlyweds. Again, we get fun snippets of shenanigans and general tomfoolery. The fortune teller basically and literally drops a horseshoe in Corby's lap and says, Better luck next time. Corby, who's sitting across from Mabel, finds a wishbone. And he has Mabel join in on good old-fashioned wishbone breaking. Jack doesn't seem too amused by this. In an effort to make things more awkward, I guess, Corby stands up and says, I think the prize at the booth should have been this charming bride, because that's a good way to get a married couple off to a good start. So Corby continues, Anyway, now that he's my sparring partner, I shall take my revenge. Jack stands up to, to face Corby. I shall always be ready to fight for my wife against any man. This bit is a really fun moment. Jack's trainer has been drinking through the whole feast. There was actually even an impressive chugging session earlier on as well. So now the trainer is pretty well sloshed, and Jack and Corby are in the middle of their blank measuring contest, and we see it play out 
from the trainer's perspective, which in his current condition is super blurry and distorted as a super drunk person might see it. It's these little comedic flourishes that really, to me, make this movie incredibly charming. While the skeleton of this movie is a melodramatic love triangle, the fleshy bits of comedy and silliness make for a whole person, or something like that. And while I am by no means a Hitchcock expert, I feel like his later movies took a more serious tone, so this comedy is a, a welcome surprise. Now, some time has passed and we find ourselves in a fancy gym with Jack and Corby sparring. Jack's trainer is in his corner. The two guys duke it out as Mabel watches. The session ends. Corby's entourage begins taking his gloves off, taking his gear off. As they do this, he starts making with the googly eyes at Mabel again. Corby drops his towel and Mabel jumps up to grab it for him. He puts his hand lovingly on her shoulder. Another woman sees this and thinks she and Bob are married. Jack hears this and the anger is plastered all over his face. His body stiffens with tension. He walks over, literally putting Mabel between the two men, frame-wise. Bob Corby doesn't seem to take the potential threat of a jealous hubby very seriously. Jack tries to stay calm, but his fists clench behind him. Jack's trainer wants to de-escalate the situation and pulls Jack away. They head over to a speed bag so Jack can take out his anger in a constructive way. As Jack looks at the punching bag, he pictures Corby's face all over it, which makes Jack a very punchy boy. After a bit of that, he heads to the locker room to change. He comes out looking pretty dapper. Dapper is all get out, if you will. But he and his stylish shoot walk out to find Mabel and Big Shot Bob alone and laughing and chatting. Jack tells Mabel to go wait outside. She leaves, but is pissed at him for talking to her like that. She goes, but not happily. Like the inconsiderate clod he is, Corby asks if anything is wrong. Jack responds, no, only go easy, that's all. Jack then heads straight to Bob's manager's office. He sits down and says, it seems as though I shall have to fight for my wife after all. The manager laughs off Jack's request to fight the bruiser Bob Corby. He points to a poster advertising the next night of fights. Champ Corby is at the top in the main event. One round Jack Sander is way at the itty bitty bottom in the opening match. This is where we enter the Mortal Kombat portion of the film. And this sets the stage for the next chunk of movie. Jack is at the bottom of the combat ladder with a K and has to fight his way up. But instead of killing Shang Tsung and saving Earthrealm, he needs to KO bruising Bob Corby and win back his wife's heart. But we'll get there. But for now, let's follow one round Jack's progress. This is shown as a montage of fight cards and we see Jack moving up the card. This is another great bit of the film that I didn't quite pick up on the first time through that Hitchcock showed Jack's career. Not just by advertisements. So we see match one, Jack beating Jackie Reynolds. 
Match two, Jack defeats Young Jackson. Match three, Jack has to fight and defeat Fred Thomas. In match four, he fights Fred Moore. Now, like I said, Hitchcock showed Jack's career not just by these advertisements, but by the seasons. As the posters change, so do the seasons. Hitchcock said he took great care to show the progression of the seasons to show the advancement of time. Well, let's not jump too far ahead. Let's get back to that match against Fred Moore. Uh, it's not much of a spoiler situation to say that our boy Jack is going to win this fight. This match is billed as a championship eliminator fight. The winner fights battling Bob Corby. The loser loses that shot. Now Jack has been feeling the magic of success during this run he is on. He's sitting in the manager's office in a super snazzy tux. They are chatting it up about this upcoming fight. Now, unfortunately, this is the other part of the film where it shows its age. The manager, if he tells him if he wins this fight with this guy, Fred Moore, he gets a title shot. But instead of saying this guy, he uses the N-word. And when they show the fight montage later on, you just see a black guy getting beat down. So it's ugly language for no reason. It's unfortunate that the language is used. And like with movie sold, you can see perhaps what was considered acceptable back in the day, but it really cuts deep no matter who heard it or when it was heard. And to make it all the more weird and not cool, I never really I mentioned this earlier, but one of Jack's entourage from the carnival days was a black guy. So it's weird that he's not uh, objecting to this kind of language when one of his best friends is black. So just a really kind of yeesh moment. As this exchange goes on, Jack sees Mabel and Bob getting awfully close in another room. The two are in the middle of a full-on 20s flapper party. Folks are dancing, smoking, and drinking. It looks like everyone is having a hell of a time living the high life. Mabel sees Jack in a mirror and gets a bit forlorn herself. It's pretty ballsy for Bob to have Mabel basically sitting on his lap with Jack a room away. The manager adds salt to Jack's misery by saying, It's not necessary for you to take your wife with you. She can stay here. Yeesh, that is not cool. So Jack seethes at the thought of the of the two of them together, alone. Earlier, I had mentioned Carl Brisson in the role of Jack. He is so freaking good in this movie. He is able to show emotion like no one's business. You get the feeling... You get the feel that he is a carny fighter just living and feeling with instinct. He fills this role so ridiculously perfectly. He gives one hell of a performance. Hitchcock is also doing some rad camera tricks to really get the viewer into the mind of Jack. The music mixes with camera tricks with interesting angles and overlays to really nail the feeling of madness overcoming Jack. Hitchcock said he was very happy with this montage of dissolves that we see throughout this party. It proved very popular, he said, this, and to the point where this bit of the movie actually got an ovation during the premiere. 
Well, back to the movie. When Jack can no longer take any more of this silliness, he runs into the party and makes a bit of a scene. He sheepishly leaves and heads back to the room with his manager. I'd be training for a divorce if I left her here, he says. The manager replies, I thought you'd said you'd fight for her. Having calmed down for a bit, he heads back to the party room. The room is tore up, but empty, save for Mabel playing at the piano, alone. A big picture frame is in front of her. She smiles as she plays and looks at the picture. He walk. Jack walks up behind her to give her some affection. Jack was going in for a hug, or a caress, or a kiss, but before he gets too close, he sees that the photo she is looking at. Who is it a pic of? If you said Bullet Bob Corby, you win that contest. Now the time to fight Fred Moore is quickly approaching. Newspaper articles hype the big fight. Then we get a montage. You've got to have a montage. We see Jack training. In fight, the fight posters let us know that the fight is tonight. More montage of Jack winning. A decisive KO finish to this fight. Jack is the number one contender. In these fight scenes, Hitchcock hits us with more movie magic. He gives inventive ways to simulate large crowds without needing real folks. Cool, cool stuff. Jack is now in the trainer's room enjoying his victory. He's getting cleaned off and checked out. While this is going on, his crew from the carnival days makes a surprise appearance. Jack is super happy to see them again. Him, his trainer, and his carny friends continue celebrating. It's a great big family reunion. Jack introduces all of them to his manager. The barker says, Now I'd like to see you lick that bloke who knocked you out at the fair and get my two quid back. The sheer happiness in Jack disappears for a second when he has to think about Corby. His smile and love for his friends soon his smile and love for his friends soon brings that smile back that he lost a second ago. The barker asks about Mabel. Jack's trainer knows this is a sore subject. Jack says she'll be anxiously awaiting to hear the result of the fight. With that, Jack invites everyone back to celebrate and see her. They all enter the apartment. Jack is excited as can be to tell her the news, but she is not home yet. And he is a little bit surprised. The guys are amazed at the luxuriousness of this apartment. They are definitely out of their element. Jack gets champagne, thinking Mabel will be home soon. Jack pours the champagne and says, This is to toast my success and happiness. But we must drink. We must wait to drink until the wife comes in. This is another point in the movie where Hitchcock used dissolves superbly. The bubbly was bubbly when it was poured, but just through a dissolve, it goes flat. And it is just a fantastic use of dissolves to show the passage of time. Every person passing through by the apartment gets Jack's hopes up, and every time he is crushed when it's not his Mabel. The gang continues to sit and wait and wait. 
And still there, waiting a little bit. Trying to make the best of a situation. But with no end in sight, the guys head out. They say their goodbyes, and the trainer is the last one out. If I see her coming in, I shan't tell her the result, because you will want to surprise her, he says as he leaves. Now alone, he tries to keep himself occupied, but he is fixated on her. He can't stop looking out the window for her. A car pulls up. It's Bob Corby's car, and Mabel gets out. Before leaving, she gives a smooch to Bob. Seeing this pushes Jack over the edge. The big photo of Corby falls over as a sign of trouble. I don't know if it was mental power or what, but that picture just fell over on its own. And uh, another point that was brought up uh, in the making of this was that this is one of many moments where Jack is embarrassed in this movie. And a lot of people are just embarrassed throughout the movie, so that's a bit of a theme, a recurrence, if you will. Um, but a few minutes pass, and a fur coat-clad Mabel saunters in. She walks past him and asks about the still full glasses of champagne. He says nothing. She yells at him for not saying. At the same time, she covers her arm bangle. By his behavior, she thinks he has lost his big fight. He tells her he won, and she acts relieved. Mabel makes a move to the Corby photo. She stands it back up. A heartbroken Jack chucks the framed photo into the tray full of glass drinks, full of drink glasses. She picks the frame up, but Jack grabs her. Jack is now yelling at Mabel. He's pointing to her fancy clothes and jewelry. She is a different person now that she's been hanging out with Mr. Corby. In a final fit of rage, he rips her dress off. The arguing and yelling continues. She takes the picture of Corby and leaves to another room and locks the door. Now this part gets real kind of scarily close to, to violence, but doesn't quite get there. Jack has his limits. She yells out through the door, I wish I'd gone on to the club with Bob and... Jack interrupts her. I want a word with him. I'm going to find him now. Jack makes his way into the fancy, into this fancy restaurant, club, nightclub thing. This group of people wave him down and welcome him over. They recognize the up-and-coming pugilist. And then this John Cleese-looking fella says Jack must be a happy man tonight on account of his victory. Jack puts on a happy face and plays along with these upper-crust fans. The lady in the group takes him for a dance. All the while, his eyes are peeled for one banging Bobby Corby. The two athletic and romantic rivals are now both on the dance floor, each one with a dame, and they are dancing back to back. They both dance around and we see and they both dance around and see each other. Corby's not too impressed while Jack is exasperated. They stare at each other across the dance floor. With the band taking a break and the dancing over, Corby sits at, at his table. The manager is there, the boxing manager is there as well. Jack then takes a seat. Corby orders a drink for Jack. We must celebrate your victory, Corby says. 
Corey gets a battle gets a bottle of champagne and fills Jack's glass. Jack stares lasers through Corby, and without batting an eye, pours the drink all over the floor. Jack is P.O.'d and not afraid to show it. The gauntlet has been poured out, so to speak. The two men stand up, and Corby flips the table. The people in the club gather to see this fracas. Corby makes a move towards Jack, but Jack drops the champ with one punch. Saitama Jack, or one punch Jack instead of one round? I don't know, but he one-shotted him. Jack leaves, saying basically that if Corby wants satisfaction, he can get it in the ring. Corby, with a trombone in his face, is in a bit of shock. Jack returns home. Alright, let's run things back a bit again. So, before Jack left for the club, he saw Mabel's arm bangle jewelry on an end table. Returning home now, he looks and it's gone. Mabel has left. She is nowhere to be found, not in a room, not in the living room either. While he doesn't find Mabel, he finds a note on a shelf in front of the now infamous Bob Corby publicity photo 8x10. The note is from Mabel and says, I have gone to people who know how to treat me properly. Jack is heartbroken. I already said it earlier, but Carl Brisson's performance is killer. I can't, in words alone, adequately describe the nuances of his acting overall, and this scene especially. It's the small things that make an actor, and Carl is doing them all. You feel every emotion when you look in his eyes, and his face is crazy expressive. And Jack takes the note, rips it in half, thinking of his upcoming fight with Battle and Bobby Corby, and we fade out. Now we fade back up, fade in. Somehow, we see the fight poster for the big night. The fight will take place at Royal Albert Hall. One round Jack, one round Jack Sander versus Australian heavyweight champ Bob Corby is the main event. What about this undercard, you ask? We got Kid Brown versus Alf Moore, Harry Gould versus Ted Pierce, good old J.R. Jim Ross versus Hal Skinner, Fred Amos versus Stan Double, and Jack Ray versus Kid King. Now, since this championship grudge match is going down at Royal Albert Hall, here's a little boxing history of this world-famous venue. The first boxing tournament held at Royal Albert Hall was the British Empire and American Services Boxing Tournament held in December of 1918. And some of the biggest names in British boxing have also slugged it out at the Royal Albert Hall. Those names include Frank Bruno, Prince Nassim Hamed, Henry Cooper, and Lennox Lewis, world-famous Lennox Lewis. In an interesting bonus combat sport at Royal Albert Hall fact, it held, sumo it held a sumo wrestling event in October of 1991. This was the first grand sumo tournament to be held outside of Japan. I don't know how you guys feel, but I think that's some pretty cool stuff. So, now back to the movie. We're seeing large throngs of people make their way into the venue. It is a packed house. Jack's trainer and friends are outside his locker room. They see Mabel enter. We mustn't let him know she's here, his trainer says. Jack is in his locker room all geared up. He's relaxing and napping on the trainer's table. 
We flip over to Corby's locker room. Mabel enters. The two of them have a long talk. She still seems a bit uneasy about the whole thing. She wishes him well before leaving and heading to her seat. She has a pretty sweet seat in the second row, which is pretty good. pretty good ticket, I'd say. This is where we see the clientele of this fight. Well, the close seats, at least. Everyone dressed to the nines, guy and gal alike. A ton of the dudes have those accountant poker-type visors on. They all seem to be wagering on the bout. Jack seems upbeat in his area. He says he dreamt Mabel was there. Nobody wants to say anything. The ring, ring guys prep the ring and camera guys prepare to film. The crowd settles in. Everyone starts cheering as one round Jack Sander and Entourage make their way to the ring. They start prepping him in the corner. The crowd erupts as Blast and Bob Corby is led to the ring. His people get him set up in the corner. Jack peeks at his sworn enemy but can only see cornermen. Corby smiles as he looks out at Mabel. The ring announcer does his shtick to introduce the punchers. With this lead-up to the fight, Hitchcock really puts over the fact that such highfalutin folks fancy fisticuffs. This is one of the things that actually inspired Hitchcock to make this movie. And with the way he set up the crowd, it really shows here. Referee goes over the rules with the fighters. The bell rings and the fight starts. It's an even match to start. The first round is a feeling out process. Jack tries to push the action in round two. He has Corby on his heels and backs him into the ropes. While there, he sees Mabel at ringside. This throws Jack for a loop. To put it mildly, Corby uses the distraction to blast Jack. Jack drops like a sack of bricks. Jack is about to be down for the count, but is saved by the bell. Jack's cornermen do their best to get him back up for round three. This starts off bad for Jack. Now Corby is having his way with him. Another knockdown for the champ. Mabel is con super concerned and worried for Jack's well-being at this point. Bob Corby pushes forward to again take it to the wobbly contender. Tears pour down Mabel's face as her true love is getting thrashed, just beaten down. Jack gets a little fight back. Mabel keeps moving closer and closer to Jack's corner, seat by seat, just moving towards that corner. Corby is dropping bombs on Jack as the round ends. Jack is pretty much out on his feet at this point. With Jack in the corner, she runs up to him and says, Jack, I'm with you, in your corner. She grabs him and embraces him. When he realizes it is her, a smile creeps onto his face and he gets a burst of energy and positivity. He can't dare be sour with his number one lady in his corner, and he feels the power. As the round starts, Jack looks at Corby like a predator facing prey. He pushes the action to the champ. He withstands a quick barrage. Corby sees Mabel has left his corner for Jack's. Now Jack is the one throwing bombs at Corby. And then down goes Corby. Down goes Corby. Unable to make the count, Jack wins. His crew storms the ring. The crowd is going crazy. In the midst of the madness, the two lovers share an embrace. Corby gives a, a wry smile to his former paramour, and she removes the arm bangle. The final scene of this movie takes us to Corby's locker room. He's getting dressed 
when one of his cornermen shows what he found at ringside. It is the arm bangle that he had given to Mabel that started this whole mess. He tosses it back to the guy and continues getting dressed. And that is where we leave the ring. That is the end. And we see that the music was composed and performed by Meg Morley, who I'll go into more detail on in a little bit. But for now, now that the credits are rolling, here's a little final breakdown of this flick. What worked? What didn't? The first thing i got to talk about is Alfred Hitchcock himself. From basically the first shot, I could tell that Hitch was operating on a different level. That this stood out the most. His composition of shots was crazy, crazy good. At this point, film as we knew it was only about 35-ish years old. And Hitchcock is already a master by 1927. The montage at the carnival that opens up the movie was awesome. Also, the stuff he was doing with the Zolls and double exposure seemed to be technically and thematically ahead of the curve. And speaking of themes, the story was able to convey its narrative and themes with minimal dialogue. Hitchcock was of the school of thought that a silent film should need or have as little dialogue as possible. With that in mind, he puts that ideology to use here. As the use of rings... And the use of rings throughout, be it boxing, arm, or finger rings, the theme continues. Gordon Harker's comedy was also a highlight for me. Every scene he was in brought out a chuckle, giggle, or outright laugh. Where he was doing something goofy or just making a goofy face, I approve of it all. He should have been in more movies, uh, for my opinion. And like I said, Carl Brisson absolutely murdered it as One Round Jack. He, in real life is said to have had boxing experience in his younger days, so he was certainly a believable pugilist, and he was able to convey the strong emotions of of his corner of the love triangle. The bad was certainly the racial stuff. It was terrible to see and completely unnecessary. For such a great movie, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Um, Yeah, and just really yucky stuff that really kind of knocks some points off this movie just for casual casual racism is never a fun thing any kind of racism is never fun but here's what the new york times had to say about the movie on this on a december 25th 1927 movie review new york times wrote it's an old and rather thin story but well told and well acted Mr. Hitchcock's method of treating his subject may be roughly described by saying that it has something in common with both German and American technique. It has a German variety of photographic angle and a German love of suggesting emotion very skillfully by means of circumstantial detail, and it has sometimes an American smoothness and swiftness. There are scenes of irrelevant force which should have been omitted, But the big scenes are all well contrived and, in spite of its rather commonplace subject, the film has distinction. Now that New York Times review was from the Wayback Machine from 1927. But let's fast forward to now and talk about the Blu-ray collection of the Hitchcock British International Pictures collection. It's a five-disc set, all Blu-rays, 
containing some of Hitchcock's earlier silent films, four of his nine silent films, plus one of his early sound films. Uh, this collection is put out by Kino Lorber, and if you're into silent films, if you're into classics, if you're into stuff, film restoration, if you're into keeping these classics alive, Kino Lorber is the one of the best places for preservation and for seeing these things in the way they were meant to be seen. Probably even better than they were meant to be seen, to be honest. Um, so Kino Lorber put out this five-movie set of Hitchcock's early works. Um, on disc one, you get The Ring, which from 1927. We just uh, went a little bit in depth on that one. Uh, you get The Farmer's Wife from 1928. You also get Champagne from 1928. The Manxman from 1929, and the early sound feature from Hitchcock called The Skin Game from 1931. Now the, the picture for, for all these is freaking amazing. It's so crisp. Uh, probably the crispiest you will ever see these pictures. Um, it's like they were filmed today, basically. Um, so there's definitely, if you're going to watch these movies and you want high picture quality this is the way to go there's so much to see especially in hitchcock's films from composition to the way shots are set up you want to see them in the best light possible and this is definitely it um as far as bonus features i am a sucker for bonus features if there's a bonus feature for a movie i want it trailers behind the scenes commentaries featurettes if it exists i want to see it I'm just a sucker like that. And this set, uh, Kino Lorber came through again. They always do. A lot. Anyone could just give you the movie, but these guys really put it together in a form and fashion that is definitely worth a few bucks and worth investing in if you want to see these uh, great movies. Now, as I talked about earlier, there is a fantastic score by The Ring, on The Ring, by Meg Morley. Um... Super talented, super interesting, and fun score that she provided for this movie. And we'll talk about her her story and how she came to work on this movie in a little bit. But suffice it to say, great score. Uh, but the other three silent film pictures on this also have their own scores um, by talented musicians. Um, another special feature on this is Hitchcock Truffaut icon interviews icon now this is archival uh audio of a sit-down interview between two the two directing giants uh two giants of the directing world of the film world francois truffaut and hit and alfred hitchcock now this is a really cool um series of talks by these guys Basically, just sitting down and shooting the breeze with each other, talking about each other's movies. And they break these interview uh, segments into the sections that relate most to these series of movies that are on these discs. And it's really, I learned a lot from Hitchcock about the making of The Ring and about some of the stuff he was trying to do visually, story wise, narrative wise. And it's just really cool hearing too. Two dudes just chit-chat about being awesome directors. So that's definitely a bright spot on this. And there's also an awesome, fantastic commentary track on The Ring 
by film critic Nick Pinkerton. Now, this was a super informative, super fun uh, way to listen to it. He had a sense of humor about him. He had a wit, um, definitely dropping information bombs all over the place. Uh, punches to the face of pure, unbridled information. And he made me laugh more than a few times uh, with his commentary. So that is definitely something to not be missed on this uh, five-movie set. And Champagne and the Manxman also have commentary tracks by film historian Farah Smith-Nemi. So those are also definitely worth checking out and more than enough reason to want to buy this set. So all you folks out there that want to experience early Hitchcock, I cannot recommend this set enough from picture quality to sound to special features. This is really the optimal way to uh, enjoy these pictures. So please do. And like I said, uh, for The Ring, Meg Morley did a fantastic score. And like I said earlier, we're going to talk a little bit more about her and talk with her. So let's have a chit-chat, shall we? Now, before we wrap this episode up and start to dim the lights of the theater a bit, let's run back a little a little bit. And I had talked about the score composed by Meg Morley, which was fantastic. I can't can't uh, approve of it enough. Um, I reached out to Meg Morley to try and get a little insight as to what was going on in her mind in the making of this film as a, as a pianist who's at this point now scored and played along with uh, quite a few silent films. I reached out, I asked her a few questions, and she was incredibly gracious to, to get back to me with some really good insight and answers into the making of, of her score for this movie. So what I'm going to do is give you the first official interview in the Golden Silence podcast history, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, she's really super cool and super gracious, and Meg Morley, I thank you again for for helping out with this with this episode. So I'm going to tell you some of the questions I asked, and we're going to listen to some of her really cool, informative answers. So. So I started things off by asking how, how she was first introduced to silent film. And she says, There's a silent film group in London called the Kennington Bioscope, which was set up by a fellow pianist, Cyrus Gabrish, who I know through playing for ballet and contemporary dance classes in London. In 2016, he invited me to play to several silent films one night for a 9.5mm show in Pimlico so I thought I'd give it a try and love the experience. It was challenging and rewarding. Several months later, I then started regularly playing for the Kennington Bioscope, which is based at London's Cinema Museum, where Charlie Chaplin lived for a short time. That year, I also attended Le Giornate del Cinema Muto, I think the world's largest silent film festival in Pordenone, Italy, where I met many well-established silent film musicians, 
from around the globe, and it opened up a whole other world. Had you always been a fan? I asked. I hadn't always been a fan, no, but I think it's probably because I never really had a reason to engage with silent film. Aside from just having an appreciation for the well-known stars like Keaton, who light up the screen, it was only when I actually, it was only when I had to actually improvise music for silent films, that I developed more of an appreciation, because you have to be engaged. I asked, when or how did you realize your musical talents would fit so perfectly in a pairing with silent film? The first time I played, I realized that my skills as a dance accompanist came in handy. For example, being able to freely improvise, not looking at my hands, being able to musically follow the action or rhythm on screen. So I already had that, as I think quite a few silent film pianists do. Then to build on that, it's about making instantaneous choices about what moods, sounds, styles suit the current action and where it fits in the story if there is a story, or to sometimes even go against the story to create something interesting which still enhances the film. Scoring for a silent film, like for example The Ring, is different because you have more time to make these choices and sit down to think about them. I'm a composer and improviser anyway, so creating music for a silent film just seemed like a natural thing to do. Speaking of The Ring, how did you get involved with the film? And what about the ring lit the creativity to compose a film score? And were there any characters, themes, scenes, etc. that you connected with creatively, creatively that helped you compose the score? I got involved, this is her reply, I got involved with the ring through Kino Lorber. They needed a last minute score for the film for their box set release. I had a month to do it. The film has Hitchcock's stamp all over it, suspense, camera angles, and he spells out the characters for you from the start, so it's clear, potential spoiler alert, that he wants the audience to cheer on Jack. So I supported that in the music and themes. I'd label my score as conservative contemporary piano, which is my own umbrella term that doesn't cover atonality effects, experimentation of sounds, etc. that are available. Soweto Kinch also toured an original score of his for The Ring in 2012 for BFIs for the British Film Institute's restoration. I wasn't lucky enough to catch a performance, but I know Soweto's music, and it's brilliant. This is a quote from Soweto she gives. One of the most exciting qualities of the project is that the potential audience for it is broad enough to not be pinned down to a single genre but the themes and location East London provide a wealth of inspiring sounds. The content of the ring also makes it pertinent. Its depiction of a multiracial East End, blasé racism, and its take on relationships make it a fascinating springboard for discussion. It will be great to be involved in rethinking the world around Alfred Hitchcock. So that's def- that's a little bit of the insight from someone who almost a hundred years later had a creative hand in the production and again I can't thank Meg Morley enough for her help as really cool and really gracious of her to help out and with the theater lights coming back up don't forget do not forget the show is not over yet before we lay this episode to rest 
It is time to find out where your favorite silent age stars are laid to rest. This is the segment where we join our beloved matinee idols on the other side of the cemetery entrance. The history, the art, and celebrity spectacle of cemetery exploration converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the stars who have entertained us so much. In honor of the first international silent on the Golden Silence podcast, we are heading off to Denmark for the first movie-related international Where Are They Now? I know we popped in on Lewis Carroll's finest final resting place in an earlier episode, but I was stretching a bit to make that work. Now, I feel much better giving you fine folks a legitimate movie-related burial site. With the death of Carl Brisson in 1958, at the age of 64, he was laid to rest in the town he was born in. We are heading to Scandinavia, and Denmark in particular, and Copenhagen even more particular than that. Here's the plan for the next minute or two. I am going to say a lot of Danish locations, mangle them horribly, and continue on in life as a terrible pronouncer of all things Danish. If there are any Danish listeners out there, please, please have mercy on me, and feel free to pass on phonetic pronunciations to the Golden Silence podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Now, our friend Carl, Carl Brisson, as I said earlier, died on September 26, 1958. He died in his hometown of Copenhagen, Denmark, and was laid to rest next to his wife Cleo in Vestre Kierkegaard, located in Copenhagen, Copenhagen's commune, Havidstaden, Denmark. Here's a little bit of background info about the Vestre Kierkegaard Cemetery via Visit Copenhagen tourism website. In 1870, Vestre Kierkegaard Cemetery was founded as Copenhagen's new main necropolis burial ground. Many prominent figures from the arts, science, and politics are buried in the cemetery. For the largest concentration of famous Danes, visit the Vestre Cemetery Section A, which is reserved for people who have, in one way or another, have made a special contribution to Danish society. Among others, polar explorer Nude Rasmussen and Prime Ministers Thorvald Stauning and Jens Otto Krag are buried here. Speaking of the VIP A section of the cemetery, that is where you will find the Brissons. If you find yourself jetting around Copenhagen and find yourself at Vestre Kierkegaard, head over to Plot A49 and pay your respects to Carl and Cleo. And with that, it is time to punch out the lights, close up the Golden Silence Theater. Before we go our separate ways for a bit, remember to hop on Instagram and check out the Golden Silence cast and Twitter at Golden Silence One. Let us know what you thought of The Ring, what you thought of this early Hitchcock shenanigans, or just what you thought of this episode overall. I dig your feedback. And if you listen to this on iTunes, please rate and review. Let me know if I'm doing a good or bad job. And I also, again, give huge, big, super mega thanks to Meg Morley. Thank you, Meg, for being the first guest interview in the long-storied history of the Golden Silence podcast. And please check out MegMorleyMusic.com for more info on Meg. And check out her tunes and her story. Lots of good information on that website. Lots of good clips, uh, 
bits from her CDs you can listen to. It is crazy good stuff for sure. So I can't recommend it enough. And thank you again, Meg. And a big thanks to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine, fine listening. And remember, the silence are golden. And the talkies are just a fad.